Now, if you would, let's open our Bibles to First uh, John, the epistle of First John. And this evening we are continuing our study of the first verse of chapter 2, which is probably one of the most comforting verses that we have in the Bible. God's people suffer under the terrible weight of sin, even though, even though we know that we have been delivered from our sins and we have forgiveness of our sins. Now that might seem like a paradox to you, but the Word of God tells us that a Christian still sins and we all know, if you're a Christian, that when you do, there's this terrible feeling that comes over you. Christians cannot be happy in sin. And that's because we have been changed. Our lives are now oriented differently. And as Paul said, we're now new creatures in Christ. And so uh, he says those that are dead to sin can't continue to live in it. And he says, how could you continue to live in sin when you have died to it? And so it just doesn't work for us as God's people to live happily and joyfully and, and peacefully with sin. Well, in the first part of 1 John, the, uh, the apostle is dealing with the question of sin. Some people said that they were Christians. There were people in this church who said they were saved, believers in Christ, but their actions showed otherwise. They said that they had fellowship with God, and yet John said that it is impossible for you to have fellowship with God and to still live in sin. He talks in that first chapter about God being light. And he says the light cannot have fellowship with darkness. And he means that sin and God's holiness cannot dwell together. And so God is not pleased with our sin. We can't be happy in our sin. That leaves us with a terrible problem. Now, if you are a born-again Christian, I said you've already experienced this. Uh, when you sin, that awful feeling comes over you. You know that God is displeased with you. And the question is, how can that be fixed? How can you be rid of the guilt? Well, John has the answer for us. He, first of all, encourages, encourages us not to sin. But if we do sin, then what? Well, our text verse is 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. But we're going to back up again a little bit here and kind of get into the flow of what John has to say. And we're going to start reading once again in uh, uh, verse number 5 of chapter 1. He says, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So sin is the issue that John is primarily dealing with in this portion of Scripture, and sin is a very troubling issue. The Bible teaches that all of us have a sin nature, and no matter how long that we live, we are not going to be rid of that sin nature. There's actually only two ways that you can get rid of it. One is that you die, 
And the other would be that Christ comes back and he transforms your living body and gives you a glorified body. And at that point, the sin nature is taken away from you. But as long as we are in this flesh, in this body, we still have this sinful nature. And sin is always going to be a constant struggle for us. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 7, For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good I find not. And then he goes on and he says, But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Now John's teaching in verse 8 of chapter 1 is that we cannot deny that we sin. I mean, there's a catalog, there's a list of sins that all of us could go down through, and we very clearly know that we sin. Uh, That's not, you know, we're not going to argue about that at this point. And his teaching is in verse 10 that we still have the sin nature to contend with, and so we have the actual transgressions, and then we have that sin nature from which those transgressions come. So where is our help? I've sinned, so now what? Well, the answer is in the last part of verse number 1. But before we discuss that answer, I want to catch you up just a little bit on what we've already talked about in the first part of the verse. He says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And we noticed first in our lesson last week the care of the apostle. John calls them my little children. And I'm not going to spend much time going back into this, but if there ever was a pastor that had a loving heart, had a loving heart, John was that pastor. And as I think about what John says here, I'm reminded of what the Apostle James said in James chapter 3. He said, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. And the reason I bring that up is because John consistently speaks of love throughout this book. He's called the apostle of love. He keeps using these terms of endearment over and over again. And so he dare not be hypocritical and talk about loving other Christians and loving God and then not do that himself. And so he did actually possess this feeling. He does truly love the people. He's their spiritual mentor, he's a spiritual parent, and a good parent, as a good parent, he seeks their welfare. And he knows the very best thing that he could do for them is to steer them away from sin. Sin will harm them. Now next he states the purpose. He says, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And that is the charge of the apostle. It's a very straightforward, easy to understand command. He says, don't sin. If you know that God is light, and if you know there is no sin in God, and that sin prevents fellowship with God, then don't sin. Now the heretics were troubling the church, and they said, you can sin all that you want, and it doesn't matter. And John says, no. He said, they're deceivers, they're liars. I am telling you, don't sin. Last week, I gave you four reasons why we shouldn't sin. I'm not going to go back to those and cover them again tonight. But I think if you've forgotten those, they're worth your review. Go back and look at it again because those are compelling reasons why we shouldn't sin. You ought to consider them carefully. But I want to move on this evening to the third part of the message. And that's that second part of the verse. And I want to speak now about the consolation of the advocate. Now, we're just going to get going a little bit into this tonight. But he says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What happens when a saved person, somebody who knows the Lord, sins? 
Well, God is a just God, and so our sins, even though we are the people of God, do not go unnoticed. God is a righteous judge. He has laws. Now, we do know that God is a God of mercy, a God of love, God of grace. But we would have an incomplete view of salvation if we didn't also recognize that our salvation is actually a legal transaction. There is a judgment bar. And when John uses the word advocate in this verse, he's just moved all of us into God's courtroom. And there God is always judging righteously with perfect justice. Now, I don't want you to be mistaken about this. If we go into God's courtroom without Christ, that would be a disaster for us. The Scripture says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now, I don't know if you've read ahead in the letter. I assume that you have because we read portions of First John in many different sermons. And there's much said here about sin and what is expected of Christians. There's high expectations that are found in this letter. The standard is dreadfully high, if you want to put it that way. This chapter that we're reading goes on to speak of the lust of the flesh, and it talks about the lust of the eyes. It speaks of the pride of life, which those three areas cover every sin that we can possibly commit. And we do commit those sins. And then he goes on in chapter 3 and he says, if we sin, we don't know Christ. And in chapter 4 he says, you have to love people. And if you don't love, then you don't know God. And so who among us has the kind of love that God demands? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said we have to love our neighbors as ourselves. And then he pounded on us again with the very same theme. And he said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I can promise you that everyone here tonight falls short of that, including the preacher. We do it every day. We fall short. And so if you read what God demands, and you read that without fear and without trembling, you miss something here. This is a high standard. You've missed something. So here we have an incredibly high standard, and yet John ends the book of 1 John by saying, these things I've written to you that you might know that you have eternal life. And we're told... Uh, I should say, if the truth is told, if I look at chapter 2, verse number 1, I would never believe that I would have eternal life because I've fallen too short of what God demands. If I don't have 1 John 2, verse 1, rather, I should say, I would be desperate. I know I've fallen short, and I can't believe that I have eternal life. But there's this little word there in chapter 2, verse 1. We have an advocate with the Father. The word there is parakletos, and what it means is one who is called alongside to help. It means an intercessor. It means someone who stands between me and God. And so I have someone who stands between me and the perfect holiness of God, and he's my helper, and he's the one who shields me from God's wrath. He argues my case, and he argues it based upon the merits of his own righteousness. Now in verse number 1, John takes us into God's courtroom and he shows us what's going on there in our behalf. When we sin, we have consolation. I will not be condemned because I have an advocate with the Father. So John says, don't sin. But if I have sinned, now what? And this is the now what part of the message. And I'm going to tell you about something that goes on every single day in heaven Every single day of your Christian life, this is taking place in heaven. 
Now, I want to take a few minutes to show you why we have consolation, why we can be restored, why we can be happy and in fellowship after we've sinned. Well, it begins with this. And, and as I said, we're just getting a start, so we're just going to have this, this one point to deal with here tonight, and that is the work of Christ. The work of Christ. Now, as you know, I love the study of the tabernacle. I love the beautiful pictures that it has of the many different aspects of Christ's work. And every detail that God gave of the tabernacle was extremely important. All the instructions that God gave Moses were important, and Moses was not to leave one single thing that he said to do undone. And in the little details, there's this one piece that I want to bring before you this evening, and that's the presence of small golden bells that were on the hem of the ephod, which was a part of the priest's garment. Now, I want you to turn over to Exodus chapter 28. On the hem of the priest's garment, sewn in alternating fashion, was a bell and a pomegranate. Now, we have one of the pictures that we use during our tabernacle study. And there you can see the little golden bells going around the hem of the garment. Now, it's a very small, but it's a very important detail. And when the priest was going about his work in the tabernacle, no one could actually see what was happening there. There are no windows in the tabernacle. You can't see into what the priest is doing. And the priest had a lot to do while he was in the tabernacle. He had to keep the golden lampstand lit. He had to burn incense. Especially on the Day of Atonement, he was busy because he would go into the Holy of Holies and there he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant. And as the priest was going about his business, he had to keep moving. He couldn't stop. Now, there weren't any chairs like we have in this room tonight, like we have in a church. There was no place for him to sit down. He couldn't rest. He was always to be busy about his work. And as he was moving along through the tabernacle, taking care of all the business there, the bells on the hem of that garment would ring. Now, I want you to listen to this very strict command that's given by the Lord. First, we have the command to to make the ephod and to put the bells on it. So if you look in Exodus 28, verse number 31... And thou shalt make the robe of the ephod all of blue. And there shall be a hole in the top of it, in the midst thereof. It shall have a binding of woven work round about the hole of it, as it were the hole of a habergen, that it be not rent. And beneath, upon the hem of it, thou shalt make pomegranates of blue and of purple and of scarlet round about the hem thereof, and bells of gold between them round about. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate upon the hem of the robe round about. Now notice what the Lord says about the priest keeping busy about the work. Verse number 35. And it shall be upon Aaron to minister, and his sound shall be heard when he goeth unto the holy place, in unto the holy place before the Lord, and when he cometh out, that he die not. Now the scripture says that the high priest, in this particular case it's Aaron, he has to keep moving there because the moment that he stopped, the bells would stop ringing. Now, why is that so important? What's the significance? Well, Aaron represented the Lord Jesus, who is our high priest, and he's always working on our behalf. He's always busy. Now, you can write out to the side of your listening sheet if you want that that Christ's work is that of a priest. And if Aaron were to stop, 
it would ruin this picture of the heavenly work of Christ that's going on. Now Hebrews says, Hebrews 7, But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, that's speaking of Christ, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. So Christ is our advocate, he is our intercessor, he's always busy working, interceding with the Father. Have you ever thought about how many times that you sin each day? I I don't even want to keep the list. I mean, I'm afraid to even write it down. But every wrong thought that crosses our minds is sin against God. Every spiteful act that we commit, every time that we fail to love as we should, when we fail to do good things to others, I mean, there are just countless ways that we sin every day, either by commission or omission. And the Bible says not only can our acts be sinful, but it says if you know what you're supposed to do and you're supposed to do good and you don't do it, that's also sin. So you keep adding all of that up and for just one Christian, there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of intercession for Christ to make. Now you take the one church that we have here and you add up all of the sins of the people in our church And let's suppose you add up all the sins of all the Baptist churches in California, of all the people in those churches that are Christians, and all the people in the non-Baptist churches that are Christians. Add all of those up. Add that to all the ones that are in in the United States and all the ones that are in the world. And how busy do you think that Christ would have to be to make intercession for his people? Christ ever lives to make intercession, the scripture says. And if he ever stops for even one moment, that means that a sin would get through and that person would have no forgiveness. So Christ lives to do this and that's how his blood keeps on cleansing us from sin. So if the priest ever stopped in the tabernacle going about his work, the picture is ruined and what God says, I will strike him dead for that. Now they say that one of the things that they did was they would tie a rope around the, the ankle of the priest so that if his bell stopped ringing, God struck him dead, they'd have a way to get him out of there. They'd just drag him on out. But the bells had to keep ringing. Now, I can imagine that every high priest that, that went into the, the tabernacle was sensitive to that, and I don't know what he did. He may have just kept jiggling his, you know, his robe there to keep those bells ringing, make sure they wouldn't stop. He had to do something to make sure the bell, bells don't stop. Now, we have to bring, then, bring into this another factor into the picture of Christ's work, here we have John sitting us, sit, uh, uh, sitting us down in God's courtroom. And Jesus is standing there as our defense lawyer. He advocates for us. I mean, that's actually what the word is talking about. An advocate is like a lawyer. Now, you, you might be an old Perry Mason fan, or some of you may not even have any idea who Perry Mason was. Uh, but if you like courtroom dramas on TV or something like that, you know that also, along with the defense lawyer, there's also a prosecutor there. The prosecutor is the adversary. Now, the advocate's the one on your side, but the adversary is against you. Now, thank God for this. This is not like Judge Judy, because there you have the judge acting like a prosecutor, and there's nobody to defend you. And you cannot defend yourself in God's courtroom. But understand also that neither is God the prosecutor. God is not the prosecutor. He's not trying to prosecute. And we'll get into that some more next week. But there is a prosecutor. Well, who do you think that might be? It doesn't square too well with many people because they don't really understand, but the prosecutor is Satan. 
He's called our adversary. That's what the word Satan means, adversary. In Revelation chapter 12, it says that he is our accuser. Now, this is some old ground. Uh, we've covered this many times before in, our, in, in the Revelation series, also in the Ephesians series. Satan is not right now in hell. The scriptures are clear about this, that Satan still has access to heaven, and in heaven he accuses us before God. And so when you sin, and even when you have not yet sinned, there is Satan saying, just wait a little bit. He's saying to the Father, just wait a little bit longer, and your child will disobey you. Now that's what, that's what Satan did with Job, didn't he? Let's go over to the book of Job for chapter 1 for just a minute. We all know what's going to happen here. Uh, Job was a righteous man. We learned that in verse number 1. He was rich. It says that in verse 3. He was blessed with happy children who loved him. And we gather that from the feasting that goes on in verse number 4. And Job was such a godly person that Scripture says that he was afraid that his children might have sinned. So he offered sacrifices on the behalf of his children. Now, that's kind of an interesting point because Job actually lived during the patriarchal period. That's before the law. It's before Moses gave the law. That's before the priesthood was established. And Job was acting as a priest on the behalf of his family. Now, we look at verse number 6. It says, Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. The sons of God, that's referring to the angels. They came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. Now notice there that Satan is not in hell. He's not the keeper of the flame. He was roaming the earth. And I suspect that he's doing what the New Testament says, that he was going about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And verse number 8, it says, And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Now, folks, that's what you call a rhetorical question. Because God didn't need an answer to this. He already knew what Satan had been doing. Certainly, Satan had considered Job. Because he'd already been out there trying to attack Job for a long time. He was trying to get to him and get him to turn against God. Now listen to what the accuser says. Job has not yet done anything wrong, and yet Satan slams him. Verse number 9. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast thou not made a hedge about him, and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. Now Satan's accusation here is a denial of God's righteous work in Job's heart. And so Satan says, the only reason that Job serves you is because you put a silver spoon in his mouth. You stop protecting him. You, you, you just stop protecting him. You keep him from stubbing his toe all the time. You just wait. I mean, you, you, you take away what he has, and he's going to curse you to your face. That's the accusation. Now, Satan is the adversary, so he appears before God to make the accusation. If you go over to chapter 2, you find that there's almost an identical scene. This time, Job's wealth has been taken from him. His children have been killed. And yet Job still has not cursed God. 
But Satan is relentless. And so he appears before God again. And he makes another accusation. Job chapter 2 verse number 4. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse thee to thy face. Now you needn't think that this is an isolated incident. Job is not the last one that Satan tried this with. Now here we have Satan doing this to Job. Here is a man who serves God wholeheartedly. I mean, you have to take a microscope to find Job's faults. What do you think that Satan says to God about a Christian who's walking a thin line between God and the world, and most of the time he's falling over with the world. You can rest assured that Satan is making rapid-fire accusations so quickly that it doesn't, it, the gun barrel doesn't have time to cool down. He is accusing us. Well, we have more examples in the Old Testament. Now, the one I want to give you next is from Zechariah. I'm not going to go into the history of this, but just briefly, this is Satan's accusation against Israel uh, when they had defiled the priesthood during the captivity. Satan is again standing before God. In Zechariah 3 verse 1, And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. Now this again is a very interesting reference because the angel of the Lord that it's speaking of is Christ. This is a theophany. And so Satan is there resisting Christ's work. And folks, that's what he's still doing right now. Now let's go over to the New Testament and to Luke chapter 23. And here we find Satan busy again. This was on the night of the Lord's Supper. Jesus was explaining to the disciples that one of them would betray him. And the disciples questioned each other about who would do such a thing. And then they got into an argument about which one of them was the greatest disciple. Now I suppose that in their discussions they were pointing fingers at each other. And they said, well you're going to betray him, but I won't. You might be the one, but not me. And then it all escalated to the point that they were saying, I'm more faithful than you. And then Peter, who was the brash brash, bragging, outspoken one who was probably speaking the loudest in the discussion, he speaks up. Now look, look at verses 31 and 32 because here we have a beautiful example of Christ's intercession. Now the Lord is speaking to Simon here and he says, Simon, to Peter, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now, folks, Peter did not like the implication that his faith could fail. And so he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you. This is verse 33. Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison. I'm ready to go with you to the death. But Jesus knew better. He knew that Peter would deny him. And so in verse 34, he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day. Before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Now, Peter is a perfect example of what John is speaking of in 1 John chapter 2. Peter sinned. He acted like an unconverted man. And the same thing happens to us. And when we sin, just like Peter, Christ is interceding for us. Now, Jesus says to Peter, Satan wants to to, to take you. He wants to destroy you. But I'm not going to let your faith fail. You are not going to be lost because I'm praying for you. I'm keeping your salvation. You have an advocate with the Father. And so the accuser is there before God. He's working against us, but Christ is always working for us. 
Satan says, damn them. That's what he says to God, damn them. They don't deserve to be saved. Send them to hell. And you know the shocking truth about it? He's right. We do deserve to go to hell. We shouldn't be in heaven. But there's this pivotal point that we find here in 1 John chapter 2. We have Jesus Christ the righteous. He's working for us. And his work on our behalf is the very reason why you can never be lost. If you could be lost, that means Christ stopped interceding for you. That's one of the ways that we know that salvation is forever. Because Christ is always interceding for his people. Now let me show you a a great scripture. This is really one of my favorites for many reasons. But let's go over to John chapter 17. John 17. You may remember that in the beginning of our study, we discussed the similarities between the gospel of John and 1 John. And one of the reasons that the authorship of 1 John is so certain is because of the similarities. I mean, even though the author is not named, there's these similarities that exist between the Gospel of John and 1 John, which indicates that the same person wrote both. Chapter 1 in the book of John begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it goes on to speak about Christ being manifested in the flesh. And if you look at the epistle of 1 John in chapter 1, there you find that it speaks about Christ being the word of life, and then it goes on to speak about Christ in the flesh. Well, John chapter 17 is another similarity. So we look there, and the theme of this 17th chapter, do you know what it is? It's Christ's advocacy. What we have right here is Christ's high priestly intercessory prayer. This is Christ interceding for his people. Now, the whole chapter is great, but we're going to pick out a few verses. And you can peruse this, and you can read through it. You'll find out over and over again, you find Jesus saying, I pray, or I pray. And look at verse number 9, if you would. Jesus says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. You couldn't pick a better spot to find the specific choice of certain people. This is actually the election of God's chosen ones. And do you know something? John 17 would not be a special prayer if Christ prayed for everybody in general and most of them ended up in hell. I mean, would you want somebody... How effective is that prayer? You got the Son of God praying for everybody and they end up in hell anyway. It's not too comforting to think that Christ's prayers would be ineffectual for most. Well, he makes it pretty clear. He's not praying for everybody. He's praying for those who are his own. And because he is God's darling son... His prayers are always answered. Now, he intercedes, and his intercession is worth something, isn't it? So he goes on in verse 10. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept. And none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world." 
I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Now there in that whole section, Christ is praying for them. He's taking care of them, interceding for them while they're still alive upon this earth. Now pay close attention to verse 17. He says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Sanctify them. Set them apart. Keep them holy. That's what that means. Now, what is our problem? We sin, don't we? I mean, the best of us sin. I mean, even that word best, as I just used it in the sentence, means absolutely nothing if we're not talking in the context of of Christ as our Savior. That's a relative term without Christ. So we keep being cleansed every day. And Jesus here is speaking of that cleansing that we receive from him. His blood keeps on cleansing from sin. And this is what he means when he says, sanctify them. That means that God is continually sanctifying us. He's keeping on cleansing us. We are being forgiven all of the time of our sins because of this work of Christ. Now the truth of the word is the instrument that God uses to make that effectual. We're speaking here about the truth of the gospel of Christ. And it contains this ongoing work that Christ does for his people. Now from my last consideration here concerning Christ's work, and we still have to talk about consolation next time some more. But the last point is that Christ was always working on behalf of his disciples while they were on earth. He was keeping them, protecting them, praying for them. And he went even this far, don't we know? He gave his life for them. He gave his life for them. Now John 17 is prior to the cross. Christ was keeping them Then he gave his life for them. Now, don't you ever think for a moment that Christ is going to abandon that work. He did not come into this world to fail. He's not going to let his people go after he's done all of this work for them. So that's why he keeps on making intercession. These are his people... He stepped down from the throne of glory to come to this earth and he gave his life for us. He's not going to let us go. And so he keeps interceding in heaven for his people. And there's the picture that you have. Jesus Christ has these bells ringing on his garments in heaven all of the time. They'll never stop. Do you know the psalmist says in Psalm 121 verse 3, He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. You know why the psalmist said that? What You see it, God never sleeps. Christ never sleeps. He's always busy. He's not going to take a rest from his work. So you need never fear that when you sin that God is going to abandon you. He will not because Christ does his work. So John says don't sin, but if you do, you have an advocate with the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, Such great truths that we find here. And we thank you for Jesus Christ who stands in our behalf every day, cleansing us from our sin, interceding for us. And Lord, help us that we wouldn't sin, but help us to also realize that we need to confess that sin and to know that you're right there for us and you'll never let us go. Thank you for your people who've come tonight. Bless us as we sing and we just pray, Lord, you would work in our hearts every day as we know you will. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.